what I really enjoyed about the last episode is I didn't have to beep anything out. <laughs> so Oh, was... we had no summer swear. Because do you know what? Actually beeping beeping stuff out is is pretty hard. Because really? well because you, you want to leave enough of the, the start of the word in. So people um, know what it is. To because it's pointless beep, beeping, right? Like I don't know why <laughs> we do it because everyone knows what the word is. Um, well, only if you do it right, isn't that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Because if it is just like beeping, like the whole word, it sounds like it came out of nowhere. It, it's you need something to hint at that it's part of a word being beeped, and it's. But then you don't want it to basically just be like the swear word followed by a beep. You know so. exactly. So if I say my. You want oh, to beep mate. it in the way that <laughs> that people know what I said, but we have plausible deniability. There's a really good set of videos. You, you might have seen them. Um, I think it became a meme um, a long time ago to take uh, children's TV and add in beeps. To make them because say something it- else. Well, to make it sound like they said something else. <laughs> That's amazing. So, like, uh, one I particularly remember, it's the Count from Sesame Street. And it's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm the Count, and I like to beep. Like, and, it, <laughs> and just by adding the beeps in, it just, just oh, it's, yeah. Oh, it's, I'll, link to, I'll link to that. And in the same way, we should also link... Should we link to it? I don't know. You showed me this paper once about this study about the severity of swear words. Oh, yes, I'll dig that out. The Ofcom one. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. So th- this is a, a paper by Ofcom, which is the uh, regulator in the UK. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's kind of essentially a rank of swearing, um, which is interesting because some of it is like, you know, why is why are particularly, particular words more severe than others, uh, especially ones that are related to um, race, uh, a particular gender or a particular sexuality or a particular disability kind of, you know, but it also it goes into these case studies of where like, what sometimes like a, a really high ranking swear word appeared on like BBC Radio 4 at lunchtime or something like that and, and like the justifications that were made around it, it's like, eh, it's BBC Radio 4, kids don't listen so it's fine. It was essentially <laughs> the justification. <laughs> um. Uh, and it was in context and uh, and all of this sort of stuff. You showed it to me and it was just, it seemed like an excuse to have an academic, almost academic white paper that just has a list of swear words. And it's just so funny to look at it. Something else I'll link to, because um, I used to, when I worked at the BBC, I used to just read the um, banned words list because uh, there was words in there I hadn't heard of before. And in fact, and I that's saying something. Was, well, I suspect there was words in there that the author of the list had just put in, had just invented. It was like, <laughs> I'm going to invent a swear word and just put it in the list. Um, but there's a SoundCloud uh, somewhere. God, it's going to be difficult for me to dig this out because this is like a decade ago. And it is just uh, a very basic computer voice reading out one of these lists. <laughs> and um, yeah, it shouldn't be funny, but it is. And it's funny because it's in alphabetical order. So there's a lot of similar <laughs> words just... <laughs> You're just getting bombarded quickly by a lot of similar sounding words. And it's strangely very funny. So we'll, uh, we'll put that in the show. Uh, I guess we've actually started the podcast now, haven't we? Yeah, off to straight in. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what we're not doing right now. Um, 
were not at Google I.O. No, I got the notification uh, yesterday saying like, your trip to California is starting soon. And I'm like, no, mate, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a shame to be missing Google I.O., but it also means, for once, uh, I get to have my birthday at home and not working, uh, which I'm looking forward to because yeah. my birthday always falls at I.O. Um, yeah, my, my my anniversary always falls at I.O. And so I'm like, I'm going to be home this year. I'm, nice. I'm, I, and I'm not, str- I'm not, not, not unhappy about that. Yeah, I'm actually looking for, I've taken a couple of days off. Like Friday is a uh, Friday, which would be Friday the 8th, uh, is a bank holiday uh, in the UK. Uh, so I've taken a Monday and Tuesday off and well, there you go. I've got like, you know, five days off. So I'm, uh, I'm actually just looking forward to taking taking a little bit of, of chill time. Oh, you know, I actually kind of like that idea. Maybe I'll do take, it, mate. Maybe I'll take Monday off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do it. So, well, the thing is, I've been recently, um, I don't want to say bombarded, but kind of been sneakily pulled in into little things that are now my responsibility. So, our 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 team lead, Paul Kinlan, is going onto a paternity leave. Congratulations to him. Yes, him and Serene uh, expecting a, a little baby. Uh, it could be on my birthday. It could like uh, so, you know, 9th of May. Best would you, birthday would you, to have. Would, would you be offended or would you be supportive of? Oh, I'm of supportive. I think more more people, more the merrier. Uh, one of my best mates from school is also on the same day, and I, it was it was wonderfully surreal to turn up at school and go like Happy birthday, Andy, and he'd say Happy birthday, Jake. Like it, 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 was, <laughs> it was just nice. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, more the merrier. So so he's yeah so he's obviously taking a well deserved paternity leave, um so and and obviously she needs a bunch of people to take over the responsibilities that he usually has and so he is like written them down p- picking them apart and assigning different people and I I am taking a couple of those like I'm not taking an unfair amount like other people are getting just as much as I do it's just things add up and currently oh, do. it's like I. I actually like it's 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 a bad sign that I f- would feel bad about taking a day off. The fact that I just thought, yes. "Oh, can I actually afford to take a day off?" is a bad sign. So I need to. It's really easy to end up in that situation as well. I, I landed myself in it. Um, uh, was it maybe two or three years ago? I, I took on like there was a bit of quiet time, uh, and I took on a load of stuff because it was quiet. And then <laughs> that's how, that's how you destroy quiet time, mate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just picked up things I was interested in, but then they became official things. And then the stuff that was on hold, um, then stopped being on hold. And then I just had this this massive. I just I ended up just I was getting nothing done because I was doing a tiny bit of the twenty things I now had on my plate. Um, and it was yes, ter- terrible time management on on my behalf. I should have just taken on like one side project. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I um, think the 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 thing it's for me. I, I my hunch is that it's, that it's mostly a psychological thing for me right now. That I feel like I have responsibility, and often the 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 mental conclusion is that if I have responsibility, I'm the only one who has responsibility, and I am the critical point of failure. And if I go, everything will burst into flames, and Google will go bankrupt. And I think <laughs> that's just something I that I need to learn to not give in to so i'm probably going to take monday off i'll just check if i have any important meetings that i need to warn people i will want to move them but um 
yeah, it's just something I realized. And I, I've been there before, especially with when I had my, my own little startup back in Berlin. And it's just something I'm very aware of when I'm heading into some direction. I get, I get grumpy quite easily when I realize that I'm spending too much time on worky stuff. So uh, that is my lesson learned for today. I will take a month off. Good idea, Jake. Very good yeah, idea. Yeah, go, go take mental health time, especially now. And I know it's not like, oh, you, you can't really go and do any tourism or even, you know, go to a restaurant or the pub or anything. But I I still think just downtime, even if it's just, oh, like just, just playing playing just, a computer game or sat in the garden or yeah, whatever. Yeah, dust, dust off the, the quest, play some, some Beat Saber or work on, on fun things, side projecty things, or just do something completely different. It doesn't matter. Just not work. Oh, I'm... I'm still I'm still mostly off the Beat Saber. My back injury is still. Oh yeah, still is this still going? I've um I've uh, there's a I found a video online of uh, some doctor who has who does uh, a set of stretches specific in inverted commas specific for Beat Saber. Are you shitting me? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, so I've been I've been doing those. As part of my recovery, I feel I feel like an athlete, you know, like I've <laughs> I need to get myself back in the game uh, through a series of physiotherapy. But my but my other half, Jen, she's getting into Beat Saber now as well. Oh, is um, she? She used to make fun of you for it, didn't she? Yeah, like I'll be uh, at my desk working and I'll just hear. Well, actually, it's either swearing in anger or swearing with utter joy, and it's either because she's lost or succeeded at a level of Beat Saber. <laughs> Oh, I thought we should like from the next room. We would just hear, "F you, Jake! I beat your score." <laughs> yeah. Oh no, she's not there yet. I realize, and I apologize. I've, I've sworn three times now. I didn't even mean to. I know you're really just giving me loads of work to do. <laughs> um, so next time you ask me, oh, you know, how's the work on this other project going? Well, mate, it took me three days to edit the podcast. <laughs> because of, and whose fault was that? Oh, uh, well, we should we, we should avoid this being. A podcast just about the Oculus Quest, which is in <laughs> rebranding like danger of should we Should we talk about the web instead? We should. We should. Be- because we had an interesting encounter on Twitter yesterday, the two of us, basically. And it's, yes. it's been a, a recurring topic, like on many completely unrelated um, conversations that ended up in the realm and the specifics of text encodings. Yes. And like every time I think I understand them, uh, as you'll see in that thread, I don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it goes both ways. And the fact that the web platform has weird quirks doesn't help. So I, I thought we would try to at least demystify text encodings a little bit in the in the realm of JavaScript because there's much more out there. But I thought today we would talk about ASCII, UTF-8, UTF-16, and what even is JavaScript? <laughs> That's a lot to cover. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe it is a lot, but I figured... No, no, let's, no, let's dive in. I, I like it. There's okay, a lot so, I can learn here. Uh, so, the, so the first thing that... Um, I guess, and that's the thing that you might have uh, misunderstood yesterday is uh, is ASCII, the you know the probably the oldest, the first original character set is or was seven bit. It only had characters from with numbers from zero to one hundred and twenty seven. Yes. Now I, I did. I, so when I knew that 
ASCII was a subset of UTF-8, but I hadn't clocked that it was 7-bit. I, I kind of got 8-bit in my head because everything's 8-bit. Well, because, yeah, each so each character was often still hand... Well, a byte was still a byte since always. It was always 8-bit. But I, I I wonder if they started with 7-bit because they might have had signed 8-bit, so they wanted to just use the positive part of the 8-bit. Um, ah. that, I'm, that That's a guess of mine, but it was basically just like the, you know, basically ASCII, the A in ASCII is for America, so obviously it was covering the um, <laughs> quote-unquote American alphabet and everything that they use on a daily basis. So I think the dollar mm. sign was in there. The other things were not. Either way, um, pretty quickly... Uh, after or maybe at the same kind, they used the upper half of that range, so from 128 to 255, to uh, model uh, letters that they need in different languages. So the most infamous one for me was always the Latin 1 or the ISO 8859-1, which I remember I had to switch to in Notepad on Windows quite a lot if my German umlauts looked weird. Um, so what basically Latin 1 is, it uses the, that upper half of the range to put umlauts uh, and some other characters in there. Um, there's right. also, there's Latin 2, there is other ones for um, other languages, which I actually can't recall right now. Um, but basically the lower 7 bits or the 7-bit seven, the seven part was always ASCII and then the upper half could be switched out with different encoding pages to accommodate the language that you were speaking. And this is obviously the time before UTF-8 or actually even Unicode was really a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, what is interesting is that... Uh, oh, should it, should we talk about text encoder and text decoder first? Well, I, I, I guess we sort of need to... I would even maybe take a step back because I mean, some of this is like really complicated. What we're talking about here is like... I mean, computers are uh, based in binary. So we're essentially talking about like, you know, some set of zeros and ones represent a character on the screen. Right. So yeah, you can only store numbers in a file or in memory and you need to figure out which numbers stand for what letters. And that's what these tables, so to speak, give you a, a standard, an agreed upon mapping from numbers to letters. And it turns out like there's many different versions of that that are entirely or, or, or only partially compatible. And, and ASCII is, is a big part of that compatibility that... The, the first seven bits um, were pretty standard, right? Like Yeah. And then it got... And that was the time back in the day when you had a file and, you know, you downloaded it from the internet or maybe got it from someone else that they wrote it in a different encoding. Because also there were like... There was Latin 1, but there was also other encodings that had the German umlauts. So you could end up writing a code or writing some, some text even and wanting to open it on another computer, and suddenly it would all look mangled because they used a different encoding. It, it was weird times. And over time, you would learn to see a wrongly decoded file, and you could and you would kind of remember what that encoding is by the weird glyphs that you see on the screen. I remember having that skill, <laughs> which is... And uh, I think browsers had, like, auto-detect algorithms as well, which yeah. is essentially codifying that skill to kind of go, oh, yeah, this this sort of looks like... Uh, we, we wouldn't expect this character appearing here, so it's probably a different encoding and try and find the right one uh, yeah. for that particular document. So then, I guess, afterwards, the next step that would be useful to talk about is Unicode. So Unicode is, again, a mapping from numbers to letters, but at a much larger scale. Instead of just having, you know, 127 or 255 numbers at your disposal, Unicode just goes nuts. They... 
they literally try to capture all languages, all mathematical symbols, everything in one big mapping table. So they are now in, I think, even up in the millions. Unicode has many, many pages and scopes and like little groups of characters. Um, I actually don't know if they have an upper limit. I think they might just be able to grow. Uh, but obviously a, a problem that comes with that. Oh, and also Unicode itself reuses ASCII. So the first 127 mappings are the same as ASCII. So in that sense, Unicode is compatible with ASCII, which is a good and, thing. And this is great for developers, right? Because the rule became yeah. just use Unicode, right? Yeah. Like, well, it, now that's the thing. Unicode is just the mapping because, you know, it just says, okay, the number 1,265,000, and I'm making this number up, so that's correct, is the crying emoji, like, for example. However, right. now the question is, that's a big number. How do you store that? Because a, a number like this in the millions is not, doesn't fit into 16-bit, probably has, like, it would fit into a 32-bit integer, but there's many, many ways how you can store that integer in a file or a, or, or a bit stream to be even more generic. Right, so you've got, like, these, you've got UTF-8, which is sort of roughly... Um bytes based, like eight bits, roughly. Then you've got uh, UTF-16, which is 16 bits uh, based. Kind of. And, there's, there's and kind of. And there's UTF-32 as well, uh, yes. I believe. UTF, um, so, and, and even with UTF-16, there's kind of two, because the question is, is it little endian or big endian? Does the big byte come first or the little byte come first? So, which is a problem you're going to have with with anything over eight bits, right? Like it's Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, and at UTF-8, so <sighs> UTF-16 by itself, if you are within the, f in any of the numbers up to um, 16 bit to up to roughly 65,000, it is pretty straightforward because it is just taking those two bytes that make up the 16 bit and putting them into the file in sequence, either in little endian or big endian, depending on what you want to agree on. Yes. And the downside of that is to represent the letter A, you're going to be using 16 bits when you only really need well, yeah. seven. It's yeah. Exactly. So the letter capital A is, I think, the number 65, if I'm not mistaken. And so <laughs> the first... Uh, the first that's such a summer thing to know. <laughs> I know. And 97 is the lowercase a. I remember those because that's often what you do to like you subtract that number from an input character, figure out where, which letter of the alphabet it is. Like I, I've written that code too many times in, in the early days. Um, yeah, but but uh, so it's not necessarily an efficient format, but Windows uses it to a day to this day. UTF-16 is still used by Windows uh, oh. on 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 the kernel level and JavaScript uses it. Now, there is an asterisk, like uh, JavaScript is a bit weird. We're going to get to that later. But basically, <laughs> JavaScript is UTF-16 and the strings. Ish. The strings that JavaScript has are UTF-16-ish. Ish. Now, UTF-8 is interesting because it is a variable length encoding. So depending on which character you have, it could end up being encoded to just one byte, but it can also end up being encoded to two, three, or four bytes. And that might oh, sound so. Weird. Hang on, I thought that was true for UTF-16 as well. Because how does it represent what, uh, Smiley, for instance? All right, let's go back to UTF-16. UTF-16. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's it's a good question because <clears throat> so UTF-8 uh, depends. UTF-16. If you stay within the first 65k letters, it will just be two byte. Mm -hmm. If it is anything above, 
it will use something that is called a surrogate pair. And so there is an entire range within the 16-bit range of Unicode that is reserved for surrogate pairs. So these circuit pairs by themselves don't have any meaning. They are not assigned any visual letter. It's sort of like a multiplier for the next. Yeah, kind of. Right? So basically it's, if I remember correctly, the first six, there's a, a specific range. It has a specific pattern in the first six bits, leaving you the last 10 bits to encode the character. So you have a so-called leading surrogate and a trailing surrogate. And those put together, you extract the trailing 10 bit of both, put those together, and now you have a 20-bit character that is a Unicode code point, which previously you weren't able to address because you only had 16 bits. So you basically got yourself four bits more, which is 16 times more than what you previously had. So it's actually pretty good. And I guess the the advantage of using UTF-16 over 8 rather than UTF-8 is that you're you're not doing this as frequently because you've got... Uh, 16 bits of of just standard characters before you need to start doing clever maths to figure out how many characters you actually have. On average, it's fair to say, though, that encoding the same code with UTF-16 gives you a bigger file than with UTF-8. Yes, and UTF-32 bigger yet again. It's it's bonkers, yeah, because that's literally just like a 32-bit number. You have to agree on big N, you know, little Endian yet again, but apart from that, it's literally just you have 32 bits, which is great, lots of characters you can address but also even the letter A will take four bytes, which is quite a lot. And therefore, it's not very popular. Hmm. Okay, so now that we... So that's how UTF-16 and UTF-8 can address or point have code points above, their, above 8 or 16-bit, respectively. Now, t- we have text decoder and text encoder on the web. And so with text decoder, you can take a array buffer, basically, or a uint8 array, tell the text decoder this this array contains UTF-8 encoding or UTF-16 little engine encoding or even Latin1 it supports, and it can turn that into a JavaScript string. And that can be quite helpful because sometimes you down you have a file that has a specific encoding or... Uh, you get a memory buffer from WebAssembly or whatever, and you can turn that into a JavaScript string. And that's pretty cool. Yes, uh, one, uh, this used to be, you had to use this a lot to get, uh, if you had a a fetch stream, because the stream is just going to give you the bytes, turning that into text, your your way of doing that was text decoder. We now have a streaming version of that. Um, But in a lot of browsers, you're still just using the, the decoder manually. Now, here's a, a little fun fact on the side. Um, MDN has a whole list of what... Actually, two fun facts. MDN has a whole list of what kind of encodings or decodings they support. And it says it supports ISO 88591, which is also called Latin 1. And when I tried it, it actually returned a text decoder for Windows 1252. And this was interesting because Windows 1252 is almost Latin 1, but not quite. And I remember that because uh, specifically Windows 1252 encodes smart quotes differently than Latin 1. So if you ever written in Word and you, you know, you put quotes there, sometimes it would replace the normal quotes with like the start, the kind of, you know, the angled start and the angled end quotes, the smart quotes. I hope everybody knows what that means, what it is. I don't know yes. how to explain it any better. Um, <laughs> and it would... And then if you decode it as Latin 1, it would look very distinct but wrong. 
And so I'm kind of sad that apparently they specced Latin. It is said that Latin 1 and this Windows 1251 should be treated as the same, even though they are explicitly not the same. They have different encodings for specific letters. And the second fun fact is that Text Decoder has support for all these formats, but Text Encoder does not. Text Encoder only supports UTF-8. And this was news to me yesterday. Like, I... I mean, so so this all started with a, a thread by Remy Sharp, and and even in the code thing he posted, he he put a uh, an encoding type uh, yeah. in text encoder, and I had always assumed that that just worked, um, and it wasn't until like I was running code with that in, and I was like, oh, it's just still coming out as UTF eight. Looked at the spec, and oh, it, it just doesn't support it. Oh, all. so you looked at the spec. What does it say as to why? Uh, well, specs don't tell you why. They just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> they just tell you that you're what it is. Um, and yeah, and that is the case here. It is just like, um, it's, yeah. I find it interesting because I'm. it doesn't even support UTF-16, which is the encoding that JavaScript uses-ish. So why wouldn't we at least support that? Because sometimes I might want to encode a string to UTF-16 to store or to... Like, especially now that I've been playing with WebAssembly a lot, there will be languages who do not use UTF-8. But if I want to encode a string from JavaScript for that WebAssembly module, wouldn't it be better to bundle those smarts into the browser? And they're probably there already rather than shipping a new JavaScript-based encoder every time. I feel like... Well, I wonder if they are. I mean, there's there's definitely... I mean, obviously, we know the decoders are there. Um, but are they, yeah, like, I, the, the encoders might not be there. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's something worth addressing in the era of WebAssembly and other things that might make more use of binary raw memory representations of strings. It seems weird to me that it is just like, it, because the thing is also a text encoder takes a parameter for encoding, but just straight up ignores it. If you pass in an invalid encoding in both decoder and encoder, I think it doesn't throw. It just gives you a text decoder and encoder for something else. So, uh, one, sorry, I, I kind of at the same time you were talking, I've been trying to find this thing and I, I finally found it. There is uh, the most effort anyone has any ever gone uh, to a April Fool's joke um, was carried out by Joshua Bell. Of course. Against, uh, yeah, so he's a Googler. Um, uh, did a lot of work. Well, he does a lot of work. He's quite senior now, but I, sort of, I started working with him uh, on IndexedDB stuff. But he did a pull request to um, the encoding spec, which is where text encoder and text decoder is specified, to do the um, to add support for... Uh, now, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I don't know. But it's EBCDIC. Um, oh, God. Yeah, so you you sound like you do you know that what that is? I remember looking at the um, it's the extended binary coded decimal something something. I don't quite remember, um, yes. but it's like from the from like the the mainframe era, some sort of yes. encoding thing. Exactly, and it's it's a very unusual and exotic encoding format. Um, so yes, uh, Josh Bell added a, a PR, a full PR to support it uh, into the encodings uh, spec Magic. on the first of April, twenty sixteen. And uh, I, I mean, 
you know, Arna, uh, who uh, manages that spec, was very impressed. I hadn't seen the date and was, you know, asking, was actually considering merging it, but also asking <laughs> questions about security. <laughs> um, it wasn't until uh, the day after we were like, yeah, this is a joke. We're closing this out. <laughs> I think it was... Uh, I'm kind of sad about that. I think for... I don't know. I want to have that. I think that's great. <laughs> I think, uh, the, you know, Josh sold it very well. Um, and, you know, a, an April Fool's that has a, that amount of serious effort behind it, I think we can, uh, yeah, we can all get behind. Uh, but we'll we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Amazing. Yes, there were a lot. it was actually added quite a lot of encodings. Uh, but yes, uh, from the, that sort of mainframe era. <sighs> So yeah, that 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 is something that I learned, and I'm it is it is my my fingers are like craving to to open issues and fix stuff. Like both, I want text encoder and decoder to handle to to handle it differently when you're past an unknown or invalid encoding, and I want text encoder to support more. <sighs> Either way, to to top off this or to to finish off this topic. I want to talk about what JavaScript actually uses. And this is something I, I, I'm i already preparing myself to be corrected by people because I might get some nuance wrong. The, the, the rule of thumb, I think, is fair to say is that JavaScript uses UTF-16. For mo- yes, t- most that's close. Numbers. Yes. That is pretty close, close enough. to being correct. Uh, the spec actually says it you should that implementations should expose strings as UCS2 or UTF16 and i'm still right. not 100% sure where the difference would be but one thing that i've learned where apparently out of confusion or why people always say oh it's not quite UTF16 is because javascript strings can actually hold invalid UTF16 and this brings us back to the surrogate pairs. So that was when we have a code point that is above the 16-bit limit and needs to be broken up into two Unicode characters. And there's a, a leading surrogate pair and a trailing surrogate pair. Now, these only represent a valid character if these appear together, a leading surrogate pair directly before a trailing surrogate pair. What happens if one of these appears in isolation without its buddy? Well, that mm. is bad UTF-16. But this can happen quite easily if you just turn binary data and just force it to be interpreted as a string. And JavaScript does not... I guess it. I guess what you would say is JavaScript is spec to not enforce the encoding. So this is basically bad UTF-16, but the yes. string is allowed to exist in this form without being sanitized. And I don't know for sure the reasons for that. Um but I suspect it might have something to do with how binary data was stored before things like um, uint8 array. That uh, is my around. hunch as well, that because you wanted to represent binary data without losing the exact binary data, they just said, well, it will be in a string and we'll just leave it alone. So if you go through that string with SHA code at, you can get the exact sequence of bytes out of it. It's just not a valid UTF-16 string at that point. Yes, and there are two uh, kind of tricky JavaScript methods knocking around that make use of this, and it's uh, A to B and B to A. Yep. Also also Um, called ASCII to binary or binary to ASCII, which is basically the web version of encoding to base64 and decoding from base64. But if you try and use this, you will run into these 
uh, UTF-16 problems, especially when you try to start mixing. Like, a lot of implementations of Base64 encoding, like, hit problems because they're using things like uh, text decoder together with yeah. uh, A to B um, or B to A to, to do the, the Base64 encoding part. And it gets messy because part of it is assuming good UTF-16 and part of it is assuming uh, these binary strings. Yeah, so I think that's the point that text decoder and encoder will sanitize whatever they consume or give to you. So if you pass an in, if you have an invalid JavaScript string with like, if you have a string with just one lone surrogate in there and you pass it through the text encoder to UTF-8 and decode it back, that lone surrogate will be replaced with the question mark in a box, which is specified in the UTF-8 spec. That is how invalid code points are supposed to be handled by UTF-8. Right. That's its its failure case. Exactly. And so I think that that is where, where Rem's original question actually came from, that he had a string, he had a byte array, he decoded it, he re-encoded it, and suddenly the string got longer. And that's because the original byte sequence that he put in contained invalid UTF-8. And so each invalid byte was turned into a question mark in a box, which in turn, when re-encoded to UTF-8, turns into three bytes. And so that's how right. the byte array got longer. Um, and this was Surma's rundown of text encodings in JavaScript. <laughs> Well, Remy better listen to this then, because uh, that's the that's definitely an answer to his question. Um, it's yeah, it it text encoding catches me out all the time, uh, especially when you hit these corner cases. As I say, the last time I hit it was with the um, A to B, B to A stuff. Um, yeah, it's a horrible mess. Honestly, you know, now now that I think about it, wouldn't it be incredibly great if we standardized uh, like text encoder doesn't work? Like, I'm still wondering if and how we could standardize a base64 encoder. Well, so because Node, Node has, has it. Node has it. Yeah. Node's but the web doesn't. has a two-string method. I do, I, I do think it, it should be that simple. Like, we should have a two-string method on um, buffers, or on, uh, uh, yeah, array buffers that will give you, like, the base64. It's maybe even, actually, it's possible that file reader or blob reader has this functionality. Oh, that's going to annoy me now. Uh, I'm going to look at the file reader spec. That would actually be interesting if we had this on the platform and just nobody knew. Or is it something you would want to add to the file reader? I've got a hunch that file, the old file reader has Oh, the a, old one, the bad one. The old bad one um, is reader's binary string. No, that that's oh. that's that's that thing where you read it as a JavaScript string that just holds binary data, and you're hoping for the best kind of. But then you could, um, btob. <laughs> you could b to a it, couldn't you? And then yeah, the... of course, you could. I mean, it does work. It just it's. I mean, le- <laughs> apart from the name being horrible, like b to a and a to b. I... Yeah. I just wish there was a better API because currently if you have a buffer, you basically, what you have to do is you you take that buffer, you turn it into a uint8 array, you then then map over it to turn it into a JavaScript string and then go B to A. And that is very, not only inefficient, but also every time I just don't trust that it's actually reliable. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think 
Base64 uh, encoding, decoding, it feels like something that must already be in the browser because um, various, like... Oh, yeah, most I'm certainly. Pretty, yeah. Well, we know for data URLs, um, there's definitely a decoder in there. So, yeah, having easier access to that just seems like... Yeah, seems like something we should just add. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's some API that already has it hidden in a corner somewhere. Um, well, you, you could go through fetch and a data URL <laughs> to... Uh, to read base 64. Um, yeah, I guess you could do that. Oh, guess. Okay, so we have a decoder. That's true. I'm... Uh, but there must be an encoder. There must be. Yeah. Huh. So there was something uh, like, w- w- let's let's match a, a, a very low-level topic of um, text encoding down with a, a much higher-level one that I'm capable of explaining. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this came up in a in an email uh, conversation last night uh, and I thought oh this this might make an interesting topic um someone was emailing me asking me about um module scripts and do they need to use dom content loaded uh in, inside a, a module script like when can they go and start enhancing their page oh um, i haven't used I got, that pattern in such a long time to be honest i know i know so like i i got sort of I got slightly frustrated in his email exchange because I felt like I was kept saying, no, no, you, you probably don't need DOM content loaded. Um, and I think they kept misunderstanding me and sort of concluding that they did need it. And I was like, no, you're not listening to me. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I apologize to that person because I, I was, uh, I think I was getting a bit moody. But the, there's, I think there's a lot of nuance in here uh, and a, a very overloaded term that we use. Uh, and that term is DOM ready. I was about to say, because I feel like there's like a, a whole series of events that exist. And I actually don't know their exact order or meaning. Yes, you were saying that we don't really think about DOM content loaded anymore. So DOM content loaded is this event that fires uh, and it fires um, at a time that the, the document has finished parsing. Um, there's a little bit of nuance in there. Like there's there's a few <laughs> extra things it waits for. Uh, it will tend to be waiting for, well, okay. Script tags will wait for preceding style sheets. Like they just do. So if you have a script element in order to write your DOM content loaded listener, it is also going to wait for style sheets to be ready. But I mean, style um, sheets are parser blocking anyway, right? No, they're not. Um, oh no, they're render blocking. They're render blocking. They they only become parser, parser blocking when the next script tag is encountered because the script but it's actually the script tag that's blocking the parser but it's blocking the parser it's also going to wait not only for itself to load but also for the style sheet to right. load as well right uh, and when you say script tag this is non async non defer script tags yes although defer script tags will also wait for style sheets as well i don't i'm less sure about async i think that might even differ across browsers wait really uh, wait so the a defer script tag will block the parser for preceding style sheets, but actually... No, execu- sorry. It it will block execution on it, not block the parser. Okay. Got, oh, okay. So, 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 so the parser will not be blocked, but your Correct. event listener won't be added for DOM content loaded because the execution that actually adds that event listener is blocked on the style sheets. Yes. So you're, it, it's going to wait for... Um, yeah, it's going to wait for all that. So in that like, sense, the DOM content loaded event, if it's defined as when the parser is done, 
could be incorrect because the parser could have been done for quite a while. It's just your code didn't run yet that listens to that event. And this is why DOM ready is an overloaded term because it is actually a lot of stuff. Um, okay, second question real quick, just out of curiosity. Yeah, go for it. If the module, or the, no, sorry, if the script tag hasn't been executed yet, but technically the parser is done, why does it get the event at all? Um, so, because DOM content loaded happens after the execution of all deferred scripts. So let's let's rewind a little bit. Okay, sorry. So back in Internet Explorer 4, they <laughs> added this, this... Yeah, we're going back quite a lot. They added this property, uh, this attribute onto scripts called defer. Mm-hmm. And that what that would do was it, it meant the script would not block the, the parser while it loaded, because that's terrible for performance. Instead, it would... Uh, load asynchronously, and it would run um, at the earliest uh, once parsing is complete. It also guaranteed that scripts uh, would run in the order they appeared uh, in the DOM. Which was already a guarantee for normal script tags. They just continue yes. to give that guarantee now for deferred script tags. Yes, yes. and it, But it, they would all be deferred until uh, parsing was yes. complete. Yes, okay. Um, now, we didn't use defer for the longest time because, well, I, I mean, it took a long time for other browsers to pick it up. Um, but also, Internet Explorer had a terrible bug um, with defer. This, this is a technology they invented, but they messed it up. So, in in what, any of your deferred scripts, if you modified the DOM in any way, which uh, it didn't even have to be DOM attached to the document. You could create a paragraph and set its text content or whatever, uh, or set its inner HTML. If you did that, it would synchronously process the rest of the deferred scripts queue. So that would mean, like, if you had two deferred scripts, like a.js and b.js and c.js, if in a.js you modified the DOM, it would synchronously execute B and C in the middle of script A. That is a great idea. Yeah. So this is <laughs> a big bad bug, right? This is just super broken. Um, and that's why we just couldn't use defer. Uh, you know, in, and this bug happened, carried on uh, in IE 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. IE 9 also has this bug. No way. Um, so we just couldn't use defer for, for a long time. Uh, despite like you know a lot of developers wanting a simple way to uh, wait on you know executing stuff once the uh, yes once once the document was ready, um, which is why like the the common advice for a long time was just put the script at the bottom of the body because that was better timing you know. Wow. Um, but I actually went I went and looked at the uh, jQuery source code this morning uh, to go and remind myself uh, how we used to do DOM ready. Uh, like how how did we used to to because if you did have a script in the head of the page but you wanted to wait for this DOM ready thing which really what people wanted is like they wanted to wait for style sheets to load and for the um the the parser uh, mm-hmm. to be complete in Firefox and Opera they had this DOM content loaded event that we spoke about um which stands out like a sore thumb compared to other events because it has it's case sensitive and it has uppercase in it. 
uh, there was a series of... Also, it's past tense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It, it's a, I don't think it was precedent at the point because all the other events are click, scroll, and this one is loaded. Loaded, yes, absolutely. So I think that there was other events that kind of fit this pattern that came out in, in, that, in the same... Like weird version mm. of the of the DOM spec, um, and it was like I think uh, the mutation events in HTML happened at the same time, and I believe they have this same capitalization stuff as well. I don't know if they have the the tense thing. I, ha- I hadn't even noticed that because yes, we we have some like before unload, and we have some before things, but I, yeah, we don't have many uh, past tense. Anyway, Mozilla and Opera supported that. Safari didn't at the time. Um, but it supported Internet Explorer's document.ready state. So document.ready state is a string, and it kind of reflects uh, what state the document's in. Um, and, and it so has would some you, weird values. Like, so would you just pull that? Yes, you would just pull that. And, and I mean, I don't think RAF was a thing at that point in time, right? Would you just No, you'd be using timeout? set timeout. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, I believe jQuery, the jQuery version I was looking at was using set timeout one as well. So that was like, that would be <laughs> extremely CPU intensive. Uh, I know I wrote JavaScript like that. The, the JavaScript library I maintained at the time was set timeout zero. So it had, had you know, all kinds of stuff that I've le- since learned is a bad idea. Um, Internet Explorer had this weird behavior because it, it had document ready state as well, but it was buggy. Uh, it would sometimes <laughs> report the wrong value in a similar way to like defer was wrong. Um, in fact, it might even be the same bug uh, under the hood. So, but then someone someone discovered um, there's this weird method uh, that Internet Explorer has. I, I I assume it's gone now. I don't know if it got standardized. It's called do scroll. It's on the document element document element dot do scroll. Um, and it acts as if the scroll bar was touched by the user. Um, I'm not sure what use it has beyond that. Maybe it fires scroll events or something. I don't know. Anyway, so, so can you give a position to scroll to, or is it literally no? Just... No, you 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 could tell it horizontal or vertical, um, but it was it was a null action. I'm not sure what the well, I I probably should have looked this up. I'll put a I'll put a link to some docs in the show notes uh, and we can maybe figure out exactly what it was needed for. Um obviously it can't be for much because we've never used it before or since except it was used in part of DOM ready because this method would throw if the DOM wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> so you would pull it you would pull it until it stopped throwing. That's bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, nowadays we have a reliable ready state. Um, so you know if the document, the DOM is already ready, there's a ready state change event for monitoring that, and you've also got DOM content loaded. So, um, but a lot of browsers, you know, even that didn't support DOM content loaded or ready states, um, which would have been earlier versions of Firefox and Opera, uh, they would fall down to window.onload, which not only just includes the parser being ready, but includes all the images on the page loading, like, you know, heavily delayed. But that code path was still in there because a lot of browsers relied on it. I can't believe that this is the kind of behavior that Chrome has to support to this day. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Th- th- these code paths still exist and must behave in the expected way for these old websites to work, which is both 
great and you know very respectable but also wow just wow so this was this was the cause of the confusion i was having in this in this email thread was i was saying you don't need dom content loaded because your script is your uh, module scripts are defer by default you don't even have to put the defer attribute on that is just their default um you don't need to do dom content loaded because deferred scripts run at uh, just before dom, dom content loaded anyway and i think the confusion was the 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 other person was reading that as just before dom content loaded that means the document isn't parsed yet <laughs> um but there's this part of the html spec called um the end <laughs> which is great um which is what what to do um once the document is finished parsing and the first thing it does is it goes through these deferred scripts waits for them to fully arrive uh, in order waits for anything that those scripts are blocked on which would be style sheets and then executes those scripts in order and then once it's done that it goes and fires dom content loaded and it is just like one step apart like there's no change to the the parser the parser is fully done at this point so dom content lo- loaded comes later than defer um the reason for that probably someone just flipped a coin uh, there was maybe some compatibility <laughs> over like how ready state landed and all of this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, but it's a it's sort of a, a bit of web history there. Um, but it raises like a longer question of of like, is that the right time to be running script? Should we wait for the whole document to arrive and then uh, enhance things? And it's um, it's what we all do, and it's what we all still do, but. It's really interesting to see that sort of web components offer a much better way. Uh, but another way that is also full of gotchas that certainly caught me out when I when I started thinking about it. So the model of web components isn't, you know, you don't wait until the document's parsed and then execute your script. You define your custom element as early as possible. I guess, yeah. As soon as it's defined, it will run for any elements on the page with that tag name. Yeah, they will get an upgrade, right? Which is yes. interesting when you write web components because you have that's where you have to make really sure that in your head you're aware that the constructor can run with being attached to the DOM and without being attached to the DOM depending on what kind of code path is happening. Like on an upgrade, the constructor will run on a DOM that is already attached to the main DOM. If you created later on it can be created without being attached to the dom so you can't just access your parent at any point in your custom element you need to be sure that you're at a point where those things are available to you exactly and this is the stuff that the html spec itself has to do because elements can be created by the parser already attached to a document um or very soon to be attached to a document or or it can be created just in you know in memory and, and never be attached to a document um so it'll enhance everything that's already on the page, but as the document continues to load in, or as you say, as elements are created, it is going to call your custom element constructor for that as well and enhance it. And the big gotcha here it is your constructor will be called when the element is created. And the element is created on the start tag of your custom element. Yes. Not on the end tag. So you don't have access to your children. Well, it's a it's a race. 
You might. I, I, I think, well, if it's enhancing elements that are already on the page. Right. So then, for the upgrade, you yes, might. For you do. If, if it's the parser, parser that is creating the element, so you're literally still in the streaming parsing stage, then you won't, right? And then you won't. Exactly. Uh, and this is this is a real gotcha. Um, and actually, I don't. I think there have been requests, but I don't know if there's a solution. If there is an event for you to know when your children are there. No, you have to sort of wait for um, another element to appear after you. Uh, using a mutation observer is, is a fairly reliable way. Is is that the um, best practice? I mean, it's not best practice because, well, here's the thing. <laughs> the best, there are very few, if you're, the idea about a custom element is to behave like the existing elements that we have in HTML. Yeah. Like this is your way to create a video element, you know, or something like that, uh, that has like behaviors attached. And barely any tags in HTML, barely any, have behavior linked to the end tag. No, but they do have behavior on when children get added or removed, right? So that's basically where mutation observer would come in if you want to mimic exactly. that behavior. Yeah. So that's so that's how you would do it. You would use things like slot change events if it's like specific kinds of elements or mutation observers so you can detect because the, the DOM is never done, right? Like that stuff can change True. through script or through like just parsing. So uh, here's a summer quiz. I don't know if I would have got this um, at the time. Can you think of any elements that do have behaviors linked to them around the closing tag rather uh, and don't really do anything around the opening tag? So the first thing that I could see is some of the self-closing things. Like like a P tag, you can just use a single P tag and don't need to add the closing P tag because the next P tag will implicitly close the previous one. And I wonder if there's a different element that is has the self self closing behavior, like, like select maybe like the options in a select. No, they are. That's just the same thing. It will it will create the option um, if you have a particularly slow parse. It will create the option element, um, and then later add the text to it. Okay, um, something that sh- that that is has its behavior bound to the closing tag, not style. I mean. No, no, you're right, actually. Uh, style is one of them because uh, style is not a streaming format. Like, oh, you, yeah, of course. you can't apply half, uh, half a style sheet because it will... The reason like... I, I thought of it is because uh, CSS is one of the few languages that actually will... Oh, not a few languages. Like, CSS will auto-close the last rule that you're specifying. So if you write, like, dot some class name, open brace, and start typing some properties but never close it, that last rule will still be effective. Like it will still be passed and applied to the document because the last rule can be auto-closed by CSS. It's not the right explanation, but it's the reason why I thought of it. Yeah, that's that's reasonable as well. Like, yeah, CSS has really strong error correction stuff, yeah. which enables it to, to be sort of, you know, compatible with new rules and stuff in a way that JavaScript isn't. You use some new JavaScript syntax and it, it just blows up in all the browsers. Um, yeah, but yes, the the other one is script. Like we we can't, um, we don't execute a script until the closing tag. So yeah, because uh, it because it might have a parse error later on. So that's 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 the other one. Today that, I learned. Oh yeah, and same like I, that was a a revelation for me that that it was those two and um, 
but yeah, so that's why. The, so we might end up with with something like that for custom elements because there are parts of HTML that do already use it, but it's extremely rare. Like the right thing to do with a custom element is to um, just react to being created and then react to changes in uh, the body of your element, uh, the contents of your element. And once you do that, you're not only protected against like just the, the loading of your element, uh, which you know if it's a huge custom element, there might be many. Um, dumps of of, of uh, elements going into your your yeah. element just um through the course of loading but it also protects you against like dom changes through javascript it, if you're just reacting to change over time then that kind of solves solves the problem for both cases it's just not how any of us really think right now i mean that's one of the things we have in general that the whole that thinking about streaming is not as deeply ingrained into the web developer mindset as i would like it to be agreed it's because it's hard. <laughs> it, it is. It, it creates so many more problems. I mean, and that's the whole thing where the web is so... That's the one thing that I always point out is different from other platforms like Android and iOS in that we don't have this... We don't have everything available locally. We always have this streaming process where we have to prioritize the right assets as small as possible, like press it to, through a straw, basically. And optimizing for that is kind of half of the job that we're doing. Um, and it can yes. be incredibly tough. Yeah, so I guess that's the conclusion, really, is that when people say DOM-ready, I guess historically we've meant uh, parsing and style sheets. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not always the... Especially in pages with a lot of content, it is not always the thing you want. Um, yeah. And, and being able to enhance individual elements in a way that custom elements makes a, a lot easier. Um, it can be the way forward. I mean, that's also why I was so so happy that Chrome shipped the... Um, I mean, I guess we always supported style interleaved style tags, but it also started supporting interleaved link rel style sheet tags. They could just put them in the body and basically interleave your DOM content, your normal markup, with references to style sheets that would only contain the styles for the stuff that is just below. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was a change I, I wanted for a long time. And I, I still don't feel that we've capitalized on that. Yet. No, I don't think we have. Um, well, especially yes. with link rel, it kind of requires some some mechanism like an like a push, because otherwise you you are waiting for a round trip, right? Yeah, or, um, or at least a preload. So, so with um, inline, but even then, even with inline style tags, I don't think people often would break up their inline styles to only come just before they are needed, which would actually be an interesting pattern to see if how much it would affect something like the LCP metric. If, if you could actually optimize your LCP a bit more by breaking up your inline styles and only have the ones you need for the next up contents. Well, that is exactly what we did on the Chrome Dev Summit website last year. But we didn't measure, did we? Like, we didn't make no. a comparison. No, but we did We did that inline style thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which obviously doesn't scale because you're duplicating the styles on, on every yeah. page. But it was fine for a site of that size. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we've been rabbiting on for a bit now. Oh, so this um, was one of the most web-heavy episodes we've done in a while. Well, I, f- I felt like it was the right thing to do, considering I spent 30 minutes in the last episode talking about my cat. So, <laughs> <laughs> Who, by the way, is still okay and doing well? Still okay, yeah. He's, um, oh, he's, I don't know. He's getting a little bit needy at night, actually. He's Because um, I, I posted a picture. Um, of, of he, he likes to sort of curl up in my arm yeah. um, at night or... or well, he does that for a bit, then gets bored, then comes back, uh, and he's waking me up every time he does that. But 
a bigger problem is that I well I sleep on my front is my mostly comfortable sleeping position. Um but if the cat wakes up in the middle of the night and decides that he wants to curl up in my arm and he sees that I'm on my lying on my front, uh the first thing he does is just purrs in my ear um until I wake <laughs> up and roll over. And if I'm not in the mood to do that, which I wasn't last night, he will just sit on my face. Um <laughs> Which is how I know what cat anus smells like at point blank range. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's it's not pleasant. I don't know why they spend so much time sniffing each other's butts because it's there's there's not I don't know there's nothing to write home about. <laughs> not not positively anyway. All um, the butts. But then right now, like, yeah, there's still a big part of me that is very glad to have him back. Um, I can imagine. Well, I guess with that we have not much more left no. to say. No, then no. We'll t- we'll take we'll take listener we'll take listeners' questions if if there's any anything people want us to talk about. Oh yeah, we should do um, that. Just uh, just we'll DM Jake as well. Yeah, just DM me. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and then uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy yeah. next time. Happy next time. Bye. Bye.